Good morning. Good morning, Todd. How are you? I, I honestly don't know what time zone I'm in. I am so delirious oh. and jet lagged. Been traveling like a mad person. I've been cast in this show called Magic to Do by Stephen Schwartz wrote it, who wrote Wicked. And it's a show that he curated for Princess Cruises. And I'm learning. I went to magic school the past two weeks. And <laughs> learning how to so be a singing sweet. magician. I can't breathe. It's been it has been such a whirlwind and this wonderful, wonderful performer and dear friend of mine now, his name is Eric Bryan. He's sort of been showing me the ropes as a magician. His father was a magician and he actually mm. went to school for musical theater like Eric did, but he was able to bring his skills that he learned from his father into this process. And so he's been sort of guiding me along the way and sort of going to the, you know, the fundamentals of magic and explaining how it works and, you know, basically how to trick the human eye. And it's been very, very fascinating. I didn't realize I'm good at sleight of hand stuff, but it's actually good. Okay, So yeah, I wanted to get the progress report really here. What have we learned? I've learned the how to make like a card like appear out of nowhere from my hands, which is really kind of oh, cool. Wow. And then I've also learned how to make like a ball disappear. Like, you know, if I was in front of kids, I could like totally make it disappear now. Not so that's been the cool yet. stuff. And then <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not you would you would see what I'm doing. No, no, no. I think I could fool you. We'll see when I come home for Christmas. It's magic. It's magic. It's, <laughs> it's magic. Yeah. <laughs> See? But, yeah, no, I think what's also crazy and magical about this whole thing is that I yesterday received a text from my mother who is currently oh, on a Mediterranean no. cruise and they had a singer, they have a, you know, a performer uh-huh. on there that she guess I kept telling my dad had a resemblance to you. Yes. And now I know him. <laughs> and it turns out she taught, finally got up the courage to talk to him and found out that y'all know each other and she was just like what a small world and then yes. sent me a lot of pictures <laughs> yeah same so. the, the gentleman that they met is a singer on a ship and he he sent me i think you know a couple guests on board and you co-host a podcast <laughs> with their daughter <laughs> celeste and charles and i was like yeah, yeah, was I like, know those guys. yeah they're on my ship right they're on my ship right now and i was like oh my god but yeah but what have, what have you been up to what's been going on in your world I mean, honestly, I've just been like waiting with bated breath to see how the magic is going. But Stop. no, mostly. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> you are not ready. Oh my God. <laughs> this can't be happening right now. I am definitely going to make. I, okay. We're at least taking a screenshot. <laughs> if not, this is the, the best thing. Okay. For those listening, Todd has a hat on. It is not just a hat. It is a top hat that is extraordinarily <laughs> large. And <laughs> I think this is all I needed today. I'm crying. I'm so happy. Oh, my God. Well, but, they, they, it's, this, this hat is like legit. This is like a real magician's hat. Is that where you hide everything? No, that's where everything is. No, that, that's just in my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. To be honest, what I've been up to is not nearly as cool as you, but I finally did dance in the oxygen ball and yay. I saw the red little number you were wearing too. That was cute. Oh, yes. I actually changed up. I had red for that weekend. And then the following weekend, I performed again for the in a showcase. And I had a black glittery number for that. So, you know, I kind of felt like I was living in your world for a little bit other than you definitely no magic. were. You definitely but it's, were. You know, 
we are performers at heart. That is just what I I am learning. I cannot even tell you. And listen, we got to get to our fabulous guest I today. Know. This We're has been such a great catch up. Yes. I know. But Mr. Terry Tucker, what an interview oh that God. was this morning. You guys, yeah. you aren't even ready for the You're knowledge ready. this man's about to drop. I mean, he is just the epitome of, you know, I just think a badass. I mean, he's just like, he's yeah. a rock star. He's been through mm-hmm. so much, but he has done nothing but continue to motivate and inspire people across the world. He's, there were times during this interview, I think that we were both basically speechless as yes. to what he has been through and how how he has overcome and, and also just how much he is like giving, paying it forward to everybody out there. 100%, 100%. And yeah. um, would you tell our listeners a little bit about Mr. Tucker? Why, of course. Okay. Well, Terry Tucker is a motivational speaker, author, and international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. He has a business administration degree from the Citadel, where he also played NCAA Division I college basketball, and a master's degree from Boston University. In his professional career, Terry has been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, and for the past 11 years, a cancer warrior, which has resulted in the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He is the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry has also been featured in Authority, Thrive Global, and Human Capital Leadership Magazines. So without further ado, I give you Terry Tucker. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the show. Laura, Todd, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking to both of you today. We really appreciate it. What time is it where you are, Terry? 8.30. 8.30. And it's 7.30 where I am. And Laura, where are you? It's 10.30 where you are? I am blessed with 10.30. So I think Look I'm at probably this. doing the best. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Reaching across the whole world to talk. <laughs> exactly. Well, Terry, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, what your childhood was like, and how you got to sort of where you are today? Born on the south side of Chicago, I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I actually went to college at the Citadel on a basketball scholarship, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. When I graduated from college, I I moved home to find a job. I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to help people find employment. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. That was the good news. The bad news was I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's, then moved to hospital administration, then made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did in law enforcement was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After that, I started a school security consulting business Coach girls high school basketball, became an author in 2020, but for the last oh, approximately 11 years now, I've been battling a rare form of cancer. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, 
and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. You must be so proud. Incredibly. Incredibly. That is yeah, so I always cool. say she got her mother's brains. So, it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it takes a little bit of thinking outside the box to get in the Space Force. So, you know, I think she might have gotten some of that from you, considering you've done so many things. But let's start with the fact, you know, just because it's near and dear to our hearts, Todd and I both being from Charleston. As you said, you played Division One basketball for the Citadel. What motivated you to attend a military college? in Charleston. And what were kind of the biggest lessons you learned while you were there? I was lucky in a lot of ways. I had three knee surgeries in high school. So just the fact that I was able to play basketball at any level in college, I was very lucky in that regard. I had had an opportunity to play for Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, who eventually went to Duke when he was at Army, when he was at West Point. And I turned him down. So you'll probably not take anything I say for the rest of the show as gospel because of what an idiot I was for doing that. But I just didn't think my knee would hold up to that, the rigors of West Point, and then made the brilliant decision to go to the Citadel, which at the time was all male. And, you know, it was just an entirely different type of environment. My parents had always raised us. I have two brothers. We're all athletes. My parents had raised us to, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and that kind of thing. And I used to say when I was a kid, there were only two ways to die. One was natural causes. The other was talking back to your parents. So, you know, it was kind of a situation where discipline was always part of it. And so going to the Citadel, playing for Les Robinson at the time was, was a tremendous opportunity for me. And I, I learned, I guess I looked the Citadel as, you know, I graduated from it, but I always said I survived it. And I don't think I learned a lot of the lessons that the Citadel teaches you or really until later in life. They sort of, you know, they sort of were planted and then they germinated. And then over time, I learned the importance of, you know, being on time, of having good character, of being humble and, you know, never letting people down and things like that. So I am so glad I did it. Again, I'm going to date myself, but this was my 40 year reunion was last year, last November. So I can't believe it's been that long, but a great experience. You mentioned earlier that you went into the sort of the marketing sector at Wendy's. And we'd be correct in saying that you did did that sort of appease your father? I did. I always wanted to be in law enforcement. My grandfather, so there is kind of a backstory to my resume that sort of looks like a Super Bowl just went off on a piece of paper. You know, there's just all over the place. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun was not a serious injury, was shot in the ankle. But my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. And that was like 1933. So, I mean, even though it was not a serious injury, let's face it, trauma medicine in 1933 is a whole lot different than trauma medicine in 2023. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college, you're going to major in business, you're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose was. So when I graduated from the Citadel, as I said, my dad was dying of cancer. So I, I had a choice. I could have said, sorry, dad, you know, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and go into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you. I will do what you want me to do. And, and that's what I did. And I, I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited 
So my father passed away and then followed my own dreams. So yeah, it, it was something I did not to upset my father in his final days, but something I just wasn't passionate about, wasn't something that I really wanted to do, but learned a tremendous amount being in the private sector, being in the business world. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned there? How to deal with people. You know, I, it helped me so much in law enforcement because, you know, so much of what you do in, in, as a cop is, is talk to people. You know, whether you're, you're, you know, it's just, hey, what happened in this situation? Or, you know, you suspect the person did something or, you know, you're just talking to them. Hey, how's it going? What's, you know, it's somebody on the street. So learning how to talk with people helped me a lot. And, and I learned that, you know, I was dealing, I remember I went to the Citadel with Ted Turner's son, Teddy Jr., who started, you know, owned the Atlanta Braves, started, you know, Turner Network Television and oh, all yeah. that. And I remember one day he came to Wendy's and there was this big speculation that he was going to buy the company. And I was like a marketing trainee. I, I was, you know, about as low as you could get in, in the room. And and he was waiting in the lobby. The person was who was driving him had gone to get the car. And I went up to him and I introduced myself. And I'm like, you know, I, I went to school with you. I, I mean, he talked to me for a half hour about nothing. You know, what was your experience in the Citadel? What do you like about working at Wendy's? You know, et cetera. And, he, you know, he didn't have to talk to me. He was like, you know, get away from me, kid. You're, you're, you're nobody. But I got the opportunity, you know, Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's and things like, I got to be around people that were really successful and see how that was done. And also got to be around people who, it was just a job. They, they were there, you know, just to kind of buy time and make money. And I learned from all of that. And, and I think that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned. That's awesome. I mean, I think that, you know, no matter what, like you, I've kind of taken some detours in my careers and, and picked up, you know, but usually you end up using a lot of the same skills throughout those different careers. So I can imagine that, you know, even though that wasn't your passion at the time, it was definitely time well spent. But you did mention that while you were at Wendy's, you were taking care of your father and grandmother who were dying from cancer. What kind of impact did caring for them while going through all that and ultimately losing them kind of have on you? I think I'm incredibly lucky in a lot of ways that, you know, my parents taught my brothers and I the importance of family, you know, of caring for each other, of loving each other, of supporting each other. And I mean, if it would have taken 30 years, you know, to take care of my father and my grandmother until they died, I would have done that because, I mean, my parents gave us so much. I've got a, my youngest brother is, is six foot seven and was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. My middle brother wow. is six foot six and was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. So we were, we were all athletes and my parents used to do what I call divide and conquer parenting, you know, where I'd have a game on a particular day and, and time and my brother would have a practice at the same time at another location. So, you know, dad would go with me and mom would go with them. And so they were always supporting us, always caring for us, always making sure we had everything we needed to be successful in life. And so when it came time to, you know, have the roles reversed, I had no problem doing that. But I, one thing I think my dad taught me and I don't think it was a conscious thing, but when my dad was diagnosed in the mid to late 1980s, he had breast cancer. And breast cancer in a man back then was almost unheard of, and they really didn't know how to treat it. 
and it was end stage breast cancer. My dad was of a generation where men didn't go to the doctor, which is ridiculous, but that's the way he felt. And so by the time he was diagnosed, he was pretty much dead. And they told him, you know, like, we don't know what to do for you. Go home and die. And he lived three and a half years after the diagnosis. And I believe he did because he had a purpose. He was in real estate and he actually worked up till two weeks before he died. And I kind of filed that in the back of my mind that, you know, when we're all going to be in that boat at some point in time, I need to have something to do. I can't just lay in bed and say, oh, this is terrible. You know, you've got this terrible disease. Woe is me. No, you got to have something to do. You got to have something to focus on outside of your disease. And that's probably one of the biggest things that he taught me taking care of him for those three and a half years. Right. Your dad sounds like quite a character. He sounded like he was like a, this is what's going to happen. And this is what you're going to do. I mean, you know, gave you a lot of structure, it sounds like. He really did. I used to sort of joke with him that, you know, when I was growing up, there was a television show called Happy Days, you know, and Happy Days had Fonzie, you know, Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli <laughs> on it. And my dad was six foot five and like 250 pounds. So, you know, I sort of joke that if you looked at our family, you know, six, eight, six, seven, six, six and six, five. You sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, in front of you. But dad was, you know, I always said dad was like Fonzie. He never hit you, but you always had the fear that if he did, he'd probably kill you. You know, so he was, you didn't mess with my dad. You didn't, you know, he was very, this is what's expected of you. That's what I expect. You better do it. And I think that was a, a great opportunity for us to say, you know, I mean, so many kids today are, are, you know, they don't like their parents. I remember our daughter called home from the Air Force Academy one day. This was so out of the blue. She said, you know, mom and dad, I'm really glad I have the relationship that I have with you because so many kids here hate their parents. I mean, you know, almost crying. I'm like, well, thank you for that. But what my father taught us, I tried to teach our daughter as well. So yeah, my dad was was my hero. I, I loved him. I, I miss him to this day. And, you know, but it was his time to go. So it was time to pass the torch to my brothers and I. Well, you said he did continue for a little over three years because he sort of had a purpose. And your life's purpose has sort of been you wanted to be in law enforcement. And so after your dad passed, you ended up being a SWAT hostage negotiator and an undercover drug investigator. How did you end up doing these particular jobs and sort of what lessons did you get from those? Yeah. So I started out, you know, I was a 37 year old rookie police officer, which by most accounts is, is pretty old to be getting into that line of work. I remember I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than, you know, the young people that were doing that as well. But it, I had this opportunity. I started out as a reserve police officer when we lived in Santa Barbara California. And then when our family, after our daughter moved, moved back to the Midwest, I got a job full-time in Cincinnati. So I went through the police academy, you know, spent four or five years running a beat in uniform in a marked car, and then had an opportunity to go into the drug unit. And, and when I tell, tell that to people, they're like, you're six foot eight. How could you possibly have been, you know, an undercover cop, an undercover drug officer? But the way I respond to that is, that industry, and illicit drugs is certainly an industry, is motivated by greed. So as long as you have money, you'll find somebody to buy drugs from. And, you know, you have to do a little acting in that regard. And, and I did. I remember one time my, my old partner who was on the day shift called me and said, I've got these kids coming down from Dayton. They want to sell you. They want to sell mushrooms. Will you buy from them? 
I'm like, yeah, sure. But what's the backstory? You know, they're not just going to get in a car with some guy they don't, they've never seen before. Well, let, let's come up with a backstory. So I, I posed as a professor of metallurgy from the University of Cincinnati. <laughs> the only thing I know about metal is you put it out in the rain and it rusts. I mean, that was my extent of <laughs> knowledge of metallurgy. And so, you know, that was the deal. And, and so they, oh, okay. So I, I was in a car and I met him at a park, had a briefcase and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they jump in the car, show me the drugs and I give them the money. And, you know, then they get sworn by my team and a couple of marked cars and instead of partying in Cincinnati, become uh, guests of the Hamilton County Justice Center that evening. So that was, that was sort of the drug unit. SWAT was entirely different. SWAT, and for, for most law enforcement agencies, they're usually the best officers. They get the best equipment and the best training. And I always wanted to be the best in my life. And so when there was an opening as a negotiator, I put in for it, did all the things that you know I needed to do to get on, and then became part of that team, which was an absolute blast. But I'll tell you some pretty hairy stuff that we did. And knowing that what you were doing could eventually lead to somebody you know, dying was was fairly stressful, but something I actually, I really love doing. Just out of pure curiosity, just because, you know, I am 37, it's, and you've given me hope that there's, it's not too late if I would like to go into law enforcement, which I feel like I'd make a pretty good detective. But what was kind of like when you were doing the SWAT hostage negotiations, like what was kind of one of the craziest scenarios that you were in? I'll give you two quick stories. One is kind of funny and totally atypical of what we did. This was a guy who had barricaded himself in his house with a gun and had a hostage's wife. And I was working that night. I was a sergeant by that time. And so I was in a marked car. I got to the scene pretty quickly. And I was talking to the uniform officers. I'm like, what's the deal? Like, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in his house with his wife. It's like, do you have him on the phone? Yes. So I, I said, well, let me talk to him. So we start talking. And about 10 minutes into it, I just had this feeling. So I said to him, what would it take for you to let your wife go and for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. And I was like, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and you would come out? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? <laughs> and so I said, yeah, you have my word that, that you could drink it. So I, I gave five dollars to one of the uniform officers. I said, "Get out of the store, buy a beer." The tactical team put it on the front porch. I called them back. I said, "Your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You come out with your hands up." He said, "Do I still have your word that I could drink it?" I said, "You have my word." All of a sudden, the front door flies open, and here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink his beer, and off to jail he goes. So you know that was <laughs> that was totally atypical. Didn't usually happen like that. The other story, a little more serious, well, actually a lot more serious, this was an individual who wanted to commit suicide. And he, this started probably about eight o'clock at night. He slid his wrists, that didn't work. And for some reason he thought it was a good idea to turn the gas on his oven and stick his head in the oven, that that was gonna kill him. Well, that, that didn't work either. And then he called a family member and the family member was smart enough to call us. And so we had the house surrounded and I'm talking to him and it's probably three or four o'clock in the morning now. And he said, you know, I, I want to come out. I'm like, good. Okay. I, you know, he had, he had a gun now. And he's like, I want to come out. I said, good. You know, put the gun down, come out. I said, when you come out, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face. He said, I'd really like that. I said, but don't hang up the phone. Well, he hung up the phone, which is not uncommon. We're conditioned to hang up the phone when a call is done. And about 30 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. 
I thought you didn't. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in on his under his temple right here, went around his scalp, and came out the other side. Never penetrated oh his gosh. skull, never got to his brain. I mean, incredibly bloody because most head injuries you know, are, are fairly bloody. But in terms of seriousness, not really that serious. But you know, that was something I thought, oh, I'm great. I'm going to get this guy out. And, you know, which really went to show us as much as we like to think we were in control, it was really up to the other person who we were negotiating with, whether or not they wanted to go home that night. And we were very successful about 90% of the time we got the people out safely, but about 10% of the time they were, you know, I know if I come out, I'm going back to prison for the rest of my life. And so they, they chose to end their life in that situation. Well, clearly with that guy, it was not his time to go. I mean, he no. was trying his damnedest to get all that. And, and he's still, to have a bullet go around your brain, that is I know, just that is crazy. Up, it, was, <laughs> it was weird. Well, those are some great stories. Thank you for indulging me with that. But so at a certain point, you decided to pivot from being a police officer to essentially writing a book and becoming a motivational speaker who's focused on mindset and self-development. Why did you decide to make this switch? And from what you, I think, still consider your purpose, and did you ever see yourself becoming a motivational speaker? No, never thought I would write a book, never thought I would become a motivational speaker. You know, my wife was kind enough to let me get into law enforcement. You know, when we were first married, I was a suit and tie Monday through Friday, you know, eight to five hospital administrator. And we moved to California and you know, I hit her with, hey, hon, I'd like to take this class and potentially, you know, do this. And she kind of indulged me. And I would work at my regular job for an entire week. And then Friday nights would come home, put on my uniform, go to roll call and work all night. And she used to say, you know, you would come home exhausted on Saturday morning, but with this big grin on your face. And I knew that's what you were supposed to do. So my wife was, was great about supporting me. And so when she lost her job, it was, okay, I've got to support her now. We're going to have to move to another city. You know, I was the trailing spouse. And so it was like, well, what am I going to do now? And so I started a school security consulting business. I coached girls high school basketball. And then I got cancer. And cancer was really kind of the catalyst to making the decision to write the book, to to speak to people and things like that. And again, I, I made the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business right as COVID hit. And like so many <laughs> other companies, you know, yeah, I know, don't take business advice from me. You know, <laughs> that, you know, you had to figure out a different way to deliver your product, to deliver your service. And I remember somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I said, sure. What's a podcast? I had absolutely no idea what a podcast was. And they explained it to me. And I said, yeah, okay, I'd like to do that. And I remember I was so nervous. I was so scared. I had posted notes all around the camera. You know, so they would ask a question and I would kind of lean in and read the posted note as my answer. I was terrible. I had no stories. I had no, nothing good that was coming out of it. And about, about six months ago, I was being interviewed on a podcast with a former NFL player, guy played in the National Football League. This guy's like six foot six, like 310 pounds. He put his form up on the desk at one time and it was so big it blocked out the camera. You know, and I remember talking to him afterwards and he said, Terry, you know, when I started my podcast, I didn't think anybody 
would take me seriously. I didn't think anybody would listen to me. And I said, yeah, I felt the same way when I started. You know, so we all kind of have this fear that, you know, we're not adequate. Or why would anybody want to listen to me and things like that? But we all have a story. We all have something that we can convey to the world. And I always encourage people, you know, if you want to do it, get out there and do it. Because, I mean, what's the worst that could happen to you? You fail, big deal. You learn something. You learn, you do something else. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're very, very inspiring. I want to sort of shift over to something here. Over 11 years ago, you were diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. Can you sort of explain to our listeners what what form of cancer it is and how you discovered it and what your treatment has been so far? Sure. So 2012, I'm a girls high school basketball coach in Texas, and I have a, a callus break open on the bottom of my left foot, right below my third toe. And initially, I don't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I get the call from him that I think we all would dread. And like I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. So he tells me, he just lays that out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years, and I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have a rare form of melanoma, which most people think has too much exposure to the sun. But this is a rare form that has nothing to do with that, that appears on the bottom of the feet and the palms of the hands. And because my cancer was so rare, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And so I did. I end up, you know, having the tumor cut out of my foot, all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And then at the time, melanoma was a, was a death sentence. They had nothing to, to treat it with. So they put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon just to try to help the disease not to come back, sort of kicking the can down the road. The side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And like I said, not a cure. We're kicking the can down the road. Eventually, the interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Fortunately, I was able to survive that, but I had to stop it. And almost immediately, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. That necessitated in 2018, the amputation of my left foot. 2019, two more surgeries that the cancer works its way up my leg. And then finally in 2020, kind of an undiagnosed tumor, sort of in my ankle area, grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I am still being treated for. And I know this sounds like a very dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been. But I'll tell you two things that I've learned. Number one, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity in life. And number two, I think cancer 
has made me a better human being. Sorry, I'm speechless, Terry. Like you've been through, that's crazy. That's like so much to go through, especially it hasn't been that long ago that all like a lot of this stuff has happened. No, it really hasn't. My wife and I were just talking the other day that when I was first diagnosed, that the oncologist pulled her out of the room and said, you know, if he gets a miracle, he'll live another five years, but it could be a year or two. And, you know, how's he going to handle that? And she said, you know, I kind of laughed at her and said, you have no idea who you're dealing with. Go ahead and tell him that and see, see how long he stays around. And, and I sort of joke, I, I get a letter every year from the tumor board at MD Anderson that, that asked me to circle one of three choices. You know, are you alive with cancer? Are you alive without cancer? Or are you dead? I keep hanging around because I haven't figured out how to circle number three yet, you know, so it's okay. So I guess I got to keep living because I don't know how to circle number three. So, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're clearly, you know, when somebody, when people say battling cancer, you are very much taking it head on and, you know, really commend you for that because it is kind of easy to feel defeated and start kind of losing hope. But you've said that you've used your four truths to help get you through your cancer diagnosis and treatment. Could you kind of tell us and our audience what they are and how they have helped you to get through all of this? Yeah, the four truths are, I have them on a post-it note here in my office. And so I see them multiple times during the day. and They constantly get reinforced in my brain. And, and I'll give them to you. They're just one sentence each. The first one is you need to control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one I kind of look at as a, a legacy type of truth, and it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is, I think, pretty self-explanatory, as long as you don't quit you can never be defeated. I call these my four truths. I mean, they're they're not mine. I don't own them or haven't copyrighted or anything like that. I don't, I don't think you can own a truth. But what I do refer to them as sort of the bedrock of my soul. They're just a good place to try to build a quality life off of. So I, you know, I think about them all the time. I, I, I decide, you know, am I going to do this therapy? Am, am I going to get involved in this project? And a lot of that has to do with the four truths in addition to what I call my three Fs, faith, family, and friends. Yeah. I mean, I think that it takes a very resilient person to go through that, which I think you probably picked up a lot from your past experiences. But I do know that at one point you were kind of on the verge of quitting as far as with your the tumors that are in your lungs, and you were eventually outvoted by your wife and daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I remember after I had my leg amputated, you know, I found out that there's tumors in my lungs. My doctor wanted to put me on chemotherapy. And I remember looking at him and saying, is it, is it going to save my life? And he was like, well, probably not, but it might buy you a little bit more time. I remember saying to him, well, I, I don't think I want to do that. I mean, it was, I was eight years into this fight and, and I was like, you know, if the outcome's going to be the same, if I'm still going to die, I guess I would rather die you know, not having all the ugliness of chemotherapy. I said, but I'll go home and I'll talk to my family. And so I, I go home and it's just my, my wife and daughter and I, and I, I start to tell them what the doctor said. And my daughter's immediately, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting, there's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that, <laughs> you know? So we end up sitting around the kitchen table and individually 
talking about how we feel about me having chemotherapy. And when we're done with that, my daughter again is like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do? But I remember when I was back in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I I love my family more than I love myself. And in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. It was a bridge that got me to the clinical trial drug that I've been on for the last two and a half years. So if I would have said, no, I'm not going to take it, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And so it was the right thing to do. But it was just a hilarious story when I look back on it. It's like, wait a minute, you know, are you, are you guys telling me I'm going to do this whether I want to or not? Yes, that's exactly what we're telling you. So. Yeah. What advice would you give someone that's just recently been diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis? What is the first thing that goes through your mind for you specifically? And how would you encourage them to look at the situation? I'm a human being. You're, you're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. I do not have a cape and fly around with magical powers. So, <laughs> I mean, I am, I'm a human being. And I think I, when I first found out, I went through all the stages that we would associate with grief. You know, first it was denial. I can't possibly have cancer. I have done everything right in my life. And and then you get mad. I've done everything right in my life. Why did I get this cancer? And when our daughter, our daughter was in high school when I was diagnosed. And so then there was a sort of bargaining with God, sort of, you know, like, look, just let me live long enough to see her graduate from high school. And then I got a little, a little down, a little depressed. And then I got to a point where it was like, this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace the suck. You know, I I don't like the cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to play these cards to the best of my ability. And that's what I've tried to do. I I made a a conscious decision early on that I would never take out my my anger, my frustration on, you know, somebody that was trying to help me, a doctor, a nurse, a therapist, whatever that was. I've seen a lot of people do that. And I know why they do it. They're scared that, you know, the unknown, what's going to happen? Am I going to die? All those kind of things, you know, kind of go through your mind. I would tell you this, you are so much more resilient than you ever thought you were. And I'll tell you this quick story. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did an experiment with rats. And he, he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And the average rat initially treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Now, think about that. First time, 15 minutes. I'm just not going to fail. I'm going to die. Second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives that maybe not today, maybe not next month, maybe not even this year, but at some point in time, our life is going to get better. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. I mean, I think everybody has a breaking point. 
But I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than it, than we ever thought it was. We give up way too quickly, especially when our brain gets involved. We don't control our thoughts. We don't control our brain. And it's like, oh, this is hard. I'm going to quit. And so many people do. Your breaking point is much further down the road. So that's where number one of your four truths comes in. The control your mind or it will control you. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is, you know, I used to think the four truths were kind of, there was one was not more important than the other. But I'm starting to think the more I read, the more I learn, the more I experience that 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 is. I mean, if you can't control your brain, if you can't control your mind, it's going to control you and it's going to control you all in the negative. Everything's going to be bad. Everything's going to be horrible. I use this example since I played basketball. If I took a basketball and I went out onto the court and I practiced shooting free throws, there would be a certain area of my brain that would engage. If we could look at it under an MRI that would light up. If I thought about taking a basketball, going out onto the court and practicing free throws, that exact same area of my brain would light up, would engage. So I always tell people, we all talk to ourselves, whether we like to admit it or not. Be very careful what you say to yourself, because we all become what we think. Oof. Um, I know. I love that. That was great. This Friday morning. All right. You're preaching up on this podcast today. Preach. Amen. I know. I mean, there's so many wonderful things within all of the, the four truths, everything, these little nuggets of wisdom. And I find that my that rat story so incredible because I do think, you know, that just the possibility of hope is something that a lot of people just flat out lose. And if you don't have like that connection or that support, then you know, you lose it. It's just out the window. So I guess as somebody, you know, I I lost my sister-in-law to cervical cancer when she was 32 years old. And it's something that I kind of struggled with during that time amongst a lot of other things was kind of the best ways to support her through that. So what kind of advice would you give to someone whose loved one has been diagnosed with cancer and what should they definitely do and not do? in that scenario? I would say be a person of your word. And I know I've done this. And and I I wrote about this in my book that, you know, so many people, and like I say, and I've done this in my life, even if it's something good, you know, somebody's going to the hospital to have a baby or, you know, something positive. What do we always say? Hey, if if you need anything, let me know. What? I'm sorry. I'm going to have a baby or I'm going to have my leg amputated. I don't have time to figure out how you can help me. But at the same time, the things that you do at your house, you know, take the garbage out, go grocery shopping, pick the kids up from school, walk the dog, are the same things that I need to have done at my house. I remember when I when I had my first surgery, when they cut the tumor out of the bottom of my foot, I didn't have to spend the night in the hospital. So I remember waking up, recovering, and then being sent home. And I, I had a, a like a 95-year-old friend, his name was Bud. And Bud had been in World War II. And I'd just gotten home, and, and here's Bud. He calls, and he's like, Terry, can I come over for just like 15 minutes? I'm like, yeah, sure, Bud, no problem. You know, so 10 minutes later, he's standing in our living room with a, a fully cooked chicken and a pan of cream cheese Danish that he had bought at Costco. And he's like, here, you have dinner for tonight and breakfast for tomorrow. He didn't ask, how can I help you? Or let me know how I can help you. He just got involved. He just did something that helped our family. So, you know, I would say that would be the first thing. If you really want to help, just do something. 
you know, even if it's raw, you know, you go to the store, you do shopping. Okay, I don't like this. I don't care. Shut up and eat it. You know, you're, you need this kind of thing. You need people to help you. The second thing I would say is, and I found this kind of interesting, people that I thought would sort of be in the foxhole with me, you know, would be there with me when the shooting started, a lot of those people weren't there. A lot of those people, I, I was 51 when I was diagnosed and people were like, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of young. That's a little too close to home. I can't deal with that. I can't deal with you, you know, doing that. And, and I even have people now that are friends of mine that can't discuss, I've already planned my funeral. And they're like, no, can't, don't want to talk about that. That's uncomfortable to me. So find the people that, again, going back to what my parents taught us about what a family is, love you, support you you know, care for you, make you a better person. Find those people. They may not be the people you think are going to be there with you, but find those people and put them into your life. They will make you better. They will make you smarter. They will make you stronger. They will make you more resilient if you surround yourself with those people as opposed to the people that, oh, it's always about me. There's always drama going on. You get those people out of your life Surround yourself with people that make you a better human being. You have such a high standard for yourself. It's so, in, it's like, it's so inspiring. It's like, if this person is not in my life for a good purpose, you got to go. Like, to me, that's like, that takes such strength to be like, you're, you're not adding to my life. You're actually taking away from my life. With that, I have sort of a, a pointed question for you. You, as we discussed earlier, you've had your foot and then during the pandemic, you had your leg amputated as a result of your cancer. And how have you dealt with that, that specific, going through that specific trauma and how does it sort of change? Did it change your mindset at all? I mean, I know you have all of these incredible, you know, parameters, guideposts to get you through all of this. But like you said earlier, you're also human. So I just want to know that is something that a lot of people, just that alone would be more difficult to kind of embrace all of these truths. So could you just sort of elaborate on that for us? That's a great question. Because I, I had a nurse ask me one time, what was it like to have your foot amputated? What was it like to have your leg amputated. And I told her, you know, I was on a podcast last week and somebody said that it takes 8,000 times on average for a baby to learn to walk. You know, they fall fall down, fall over, you know, 8,000 times before where they actually learn how to do that. So I told her, look, you know, when you're six foot eight and you're, you know, in your 60s, learning to walk again, totally different than when you're a kid, you know, falling from six foot eight. Yeah. People get hurt. You don't want to do that. So, you know, I told her it has not been easy, but what I did tell her was cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Laura. That's who you are, Todd. That's who everybody who's listening to us are. And we spend a great deal of time working on this vessel or a house, you know, that we call a body. And I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm not telling you not to go to the gym and eat right and get enough rest and reduce stress and all that kind of stuff. I'm not telling you not to do that. But what I am suggesting is that maybe we spend a little bit more time every day working on who we really are, which is our heart our mind and our soul. Because if we do that, th those things I think are eternal. They, they live on. This thing is going to die and decay and, and be gone. So spend a little bit more time working on who you really are 
And I think that's, that's going to help you in all facets of your life, your physical life, your emotional life, your spiritual life. I don't think you can go wrong doing that. And so few people actually work on that part of themselves. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of, in this day and age, a lot of superficiality as far as, and I don't think that that's necessarily everybody's like fault. I think it's like kind of the way our culture and society has kind of gone this this direction and why I think that Todd and I have noticed a lot with a lot of these podcasts is there is this kind of collective shift of people wanting to get back to that, back to the kind of the mind, body, soul connection, because we live in this world where everything is about how you look, what you have, you know, that two seconds on TikTok or whatever. So, you know, I think it is incredibly important, that message just in and of itself, that you are more than the sum of your parts. I mean, that is so powerful. And if, you know, I hope that everybody out there that's listening to this takes that to heart because the more people that put effort into who they are, like, you know, what's going on up here as opposed to all out here, you know, you can be both. You can be beautiful on the inside and on the outside, and you're only going to make the world a better place by doing so. So I appreciate that's something that you're so focused on. So I guess, and maybe this will be a little bit better way of understanding it. And, you know, I'm as guilty as the next person of this. I, it seems that we think that we're born empty, you know, that we come into this world empty and then, you know, we kind of go through life. And then when we get out of school and we start getting into life, that our job is to fill ourselves up. You know, like you were saying, we, we got to get a good job. We've got to make a lot of money. We've got to have a, you know, a nice home, drive a nice car, have a great family, all that kind of stuff. And filling ourselves up with those things. And what I've come to understand is that it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. And our job should be to empty ourselves out with our unique gifts and talents for the betterment of ourselves, our family, our friends, our community, our God, whatever you believe. And, you know, I've seen so many what we'd all call successful people in life that seem to have it all. You know, they got two homes and a million cars and a million bucks and, and they're miserable. And I think that's because they bought into the, you know, you got to have stuff and stuff will make you happy and stuff will make you whole. Stuff doesn't make you whole. Giving of yourself. It's not what you get. It's what you give in life that I think really fulfills you as a human being. Well, yeah, it's like once you get, I can equate it to a lot of people in my industry, you know, you strive and strive and strive and you just want to get on Broadway, get on Broadway, get on Broadway. And then I have a lot of friends that once they got to Broadway, this is it. Yeah. What do I do now? If you've reached that and, and that's what you've been going after and you haven't been working on the other things to fulfill you and, and to ground you, that when you get to the, pinna the pinnacle of, of success of what everybody in the industry thinks is successful, then you're there and you're like, what? And then you're forced to look in the mirror and forced to go, okay, now where am I deficient? If people would, yeah, people would start now, you know, being proactive about their own lives. I mean, this is really hitting home for me just personally because control your mind or it will control you is just very speaking to me this morning. To kind of follow up with that, you are now currently going through treatment for tumors in your lungs. So, you know, I think as a part of that, how do you stay so hopeful during this time? And 
additionally find time and the drive to continue to motivate others with your speaking and with your website, motivationalcheck.com. Yeah, I think it goes back to what I learned starting when I was a kid. You know, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up until I graduated from the Citadel when I was 21. And I think what, for me, it was team sports. I think it can be whatever team you're on, whether it's your family, your college, you know, whatever that is. What team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And I am on this clinical trial drug now that I've been on for two and a half years. It is keeping the tumors in my lungs stable, but I still have them. They're they're still there. So more than likely, it's not going to save my life, but it might save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever down the road that based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans and things like that. And that for me is being part of something that's bigger than yourself. That's a big part of why I continue to do this. Because when I get this drug and I I go every three weeks for an entire week and I get the drug drug every day and about, you can almost set your watch. Two hours after I finish the, the infusion, I have a very violent reaction. I I shake terribly. I throw up. I'm nauseous. I have a headache. I have a fever, all this stuff. And I've been doing this every three weeks for two and a half years. And my nurses look at me like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep coming here? And when I tell them that story, it's like, it's not just about me. It's about being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And that's the way I look at treatment, you know, more so than, yes, I hope it helps me. And it certainly has helped me. But again, maybe it's going to help somebody down the road that that I'll never know and I'll never meet. You know, Laura and I constantly on this podcast, we find that there's a common theme in all of this, and it all comes down to personal responsibility. And you are taking such ownership of your own mental health and your own sort of perseverance through this. And I think that it's just interesting that no matter what, it all boils down to what you're bringing to the table, like personally. And if you can come at it in that regard with what you're going through, it's just, it's astounding. And so with that, can you've written a book and can you tell us a little bit more about your book called Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life? So why did you decide to write it and what do you hope to accomplish? So the book was really born out of two conversations that I had. One was with a, a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado with her fiance. And that's where my wife and I live. So the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember after dinner saying to her, you know, I was really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reasons you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living those reasons. So that was one conversation. And then I had actually a young man from the Citadel who reached out to me on social media. And he said, you know, what are the most important things you think I should learn, not to just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And I didn't want to give him the, you know, 
get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could maybe go a little bit deeper with them. So I, I took some time, was taking notes and kind of had these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And then I, I sent them to him and then stepped back. And I was like, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing, after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories. And they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. And it's always fun for me as an author now to, to have, when people reach out, there's always one principle. And the principles are not in any particular order. You know, number one isn't any more important than number seven. But there's always one that resonates with the reader. And that's always a great place to start to have a conversation about the book as a whole and things like that. So, you know, I didn't write the book to get famous or to make money or anything like that. I wrote the book to say, look, these things have worked for me. I don't know if I have all the answers, but I'm offering them to you in the hope that maybe there's a gem in here. Maybe there's something in here that will improve your life. So that's why I wrote the book. That's awesome. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously we want everyone to go out and buy the book and read it themselves. But could you maybe give us a few key takeaways readers can look forward to kind of taking from your book once they read it? I'll give you a couple of the principles and kind of, I wrote them all, but there's one that really does resonate with me. And it's this, and, and it resonates with me because I'm almost ashamed to say that I've done this many times in my life. And the principle is this, most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. You know, I'd like to do this. Oh, wait a minute. You know, do I have enough information? Am I smart enough? What will people say about me, you know, if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. And, and when I speak, especially to young people, I always tell them, you know, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. But so many people won't do that. So many people will, you know, get down the road and butt up against an impediment. Something gets in their way and they can't get over it, around it, through it. And so they quit. But especially in the West, we're great. We don't just quit. We got to blame somebody. We got to blame our parents or our boss or our station in life. Most people will never get to where they want to be in life because they won't stop whining and complaining about where they're at. So few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. And I know I've done that in my life. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to blame somebody when I when I got cancer. People were like, well, who do you blame? I'm like, what do you mean? Who do I blame? It's like, well, you got to blame somebody. You got cancer. Something bad happened to you. It's like, well, I don't blame anybody. And then when they find out I have a faith life, they're like, well, you must blame God. And I, I kind of joke with them. like, no, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I, you know, I, I don't think that at all. But I do think God has given me the strength, the courage, the motivation to continue to move forward. So thinking with your fears and insecurities is one. There's another principle about you are the person you're looking to become, even if you're not that person yet. You know, don't get all excited about that. Kind of like what I was in law, you know, I wanted to be in law enforcement, yet I was in the private sector. 
But I always looked at myself. If you ask me today, you know, what did you do for a living? I would tell you I was a police officer. But as you've seen in my resume, I've had tons of jobs, but that's the way I identify. So maybe you're not where you want to be yet, but keep going down that path. Keep taking those risks. Keep doing those things. That's one. And then I think the last one, and maybe this is the most important one, it's love is the most important word in any language. And I remember when I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at UCLA by the name of John Wooden. And Wooden was probably one of the most successful coaches of all times. And I remember listening to an interview that he was giving and a reporter asked him a question, coach, what do you think is the most important thing you want your players to learn? And I am literally listening to this with a pad of paper in hand. I'm looking for some good X's and O's, you know, something I can implement in my basketball game. And he says, I want my players to understand the importance of love in their life. Love what they do, love their families, love their creator. And I was like, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want something good. But that was one of the most profound things that he ever said. And certainly one of the most profound things that as a kid, I didn't understand. But as an adult, that is the most important thing. The most important word in any language is the word love. Love what we do, love your fellow man, and love your creator. If you do that, I think you got a pretty good life. Yep. <laughs> you know, and my mentor in New York in acting class, you know, he says that the only thing that humans operate out of is they only react from love or fear. That's how we as humans, that's how we are. And, you know, you touched on both of those with that, that you are the person you're looking to become is pretty. That's some good shit. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, we've certainly gotten tons of nuggets of knowledge here. I'm just like, you know, trying to soak it all in. I don't have to go back and, you know, maybe make my own post-it note wall of all of these things. This is crazy. Well, we don't want to keep you for your full day. We want to let you get back to the rest of your day. But we do have a tradition on this show before because we talk about a lot of heavy topics. This is sort of a palate cleanser. We do a question of the day that has nothing to do with what we've discussed. So the question of the day today, dun, 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 it is... Do you remember when you first logged onto the internet? And if so, what was the first website you visited? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the dial-up? It made the little yeah, noise. I remember the sound. Yeah, you know, the, I remember everyone the, remembers yeah, the sound. Yeah, I do. I remember when I was dating my wife, she had a computer, you know, the huge terminal, you know, yeah. that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. was like this deep in that. And stuff. And I remember, you know, I'm like, what, what is this? I mean, literally, I took a computer class at the Citadel and it was you coded this stuff and gave the paper to somebody in the computer lab. They put it on punch cards and ran it through a computer. If you missed a period or a comma or a dash, you flunked because, you know, I mean, literally that and the cards would be, you know, the stack would be that thick. So, I mean, that's what I understood as computers. And now, you know, our cell phones have more computing power than, you know, the Apollo 11 spacecraft, you know, think about it and stuff like that. So I don't remember it, but I've seen it evolve and I don't know if I like it. You know, I've had people, <laughs> okay. very, very few people, but if, you know, I'm interested in law enforcement, what do you suggest? And what I tell them is put down your devices and go out on the street and talk to the homeless guy. And go up to the penthouse and talk to that guy. There was a really good book I'll recommend to you. It's called Do Hard Things by a man by the name of Steve Magnus. He tells a story in there. And I don't remember if this guy was a professor or a researcher or what. He took people, mostly young people, and he put them in a room. 
And the only thing in the room was a table and a chair. They were not allowed to have any devices or anything like that. And he kept them in the room 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Not, not anything ridiculous. But the only other thing in the room was a buzzer. And if you press the buzzer on the table, you got an electric shock. 78% of the men and 25% of the women shocked themselves, including one man who shocked himself every five seconds, which said to them, we are so dependent on these devices for our, you know, am I a good person? Am I, you know, wearing the right thing? Do people like me? And things like that. And what I started to do, what I've started to take away from that is I spend five, 10 minutes every day just sitting alone in a room, not meditating, not praying, but I let my mind go wherever it is. But if you can't be comfortable with yourself, how can you possibly be comfortable? How can you possibly lead other people? So spend some time being comfortable with yourself. Boy, that was a terrible answer to your question. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's kind of where it went for me. No, no, I think it really went in a great direction there, and I think it's kind of poignant that you don't remember when that was because you were out busy living your life. I think we were a little bit, you know, it, it was such a novelty to us because we didn't have to go through that whole you know, doing all the coding, everything. It was like you went to a computer lab and it was, you know, we used to have the Oregon Trail and stuff like that. And then once AOL came out, it was like, what? So, you know, just I think a little bit of a different generation, but I think it's a really good message that at the end of the day, you know, we, we are, I think that study is pretty amazing. I think one thing it also tells us is that Men, you've got some work to do because seventy-eight percent. Women are much smarter than men. Yeah, the boredom is that our uh, our ability to get bored is very. It happens often, but it doesn't have to. And especially, you don't need to be shocking yourself, whether physically or metaphorically, to get anywhere. I think you know this has just been an an absolutely amazing discussion. We just can't thank you enough for coming on here. I think we have a lot to think about just ourselves and to digest, but can't recommend enough for everybody to go out and get Terry's book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon Extraordinary Life, and check out your website that, you know, I'm assuming you also look at every once in a while, despite your lack of... Just a little bit. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us. You just have an incredible story and are just an incredible person. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed speaking with both of you. Thanks so much. That's awesome. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Well, what did you think? Well, even in the interview, I was gushing over him. I think he's just to have gone through what he's gone through and still find the I don't know, the space in his heart and in his mind to encourage and motivate others while he's currently going through cancer treatment and being an amputee. Like he's just, his story, it's just like, literally it's mind over matter. And it's, it's to me, it's probably one of the more profound interviews we've done to date. As far as, you know, I'm telling you that one thing about controlling your mind or it will control you, you know, and the fact that it always comes back to personal responsibility. We are responsible for ourselves. You know, Oprah says no one is coming to save you. You know, you must save yourself. What did you think? I mean, I think that he is in general just 
I've listened to some of his podcasts and he told us off air that he's done over 700, which is just like mind blowing in and of itself. But that at one point he mentioned that there's basically like four types of people. There's the unmotivated, which is the majority, vast majority of people on this planet, the motivated, the inspirational, and the aspirational. And the two differences mm-hmm. between inspirational and aspirational being inspirational is somebody who makes you want to do better and do great things. Aspirational is like somebody that you want to aspire to be. And I put him up there in the aspirational category. Like, I hope that if I ever have the misfortune or, you know, I don't even know if you would call it that, but of having a cancer diagnosis that I would have even an iota of his resolve and mental fortitude and just ability to, it's not even silver lining. It's like a platinum, just shiny everything in a way. And I'm sure, you know, he has, he said he's human. He has his days that he's down and, and stuff like that. But, you know, you wouldn't, Fake it from no. talking to him. Exactly. And from his book, you know, what he said, one of his quotes is, you are the person you are looking to become. And yeah. I mean, from what you just said, Laura, I mean, he is aspirational. Yeah. And he's had so many different like careers, but the fact that law enforcement, law enforcement is the one that sort of resonates with him, which is still helping others, you know, yeah. and being yeah. sort of a hero. He is a hero. Whether he sees it or not, he is a hero. Him doing these podcasts, if he helps even just one person who's going through a bout with cancer or someone who has a loved one who is going through cancer, it might give them some sort of strength to be a backbone for that person. You know, when he said that a lot of his friends that he thought were his ride or dies weren't there for him when all this cancer stuff went down. You know, what does that say about people? You know, he was no longer able to be what they needed him to be for them and their mm-hmm. their own ego, for their ego, you know, yeah. and the fact that he's like, that person has to get out of my life if they're not yeah. bringing, you know, good juju. Yeah. And I think if there's any moment in your life where you have that realization, it's probably that of like, what is actually serving me? And what is not like, and I, you know, the drama and the bullshit is like not on my priority. It's not on my top 10 list for sustainable excellence. (laughs) It's unsustainable. Get out of here. So I think, and it was, it was very powerful because I felt that way too. Even I have to emphasize that a lot, his book, his website, all of it is not just for people dealing with cancer, that it's for every human being out there and how to get through life and maintain, not just get through life, how to make your life ideal, like what you want it to be. But a big thing that I kind of took away from it, even when he was talking about those people, when he was diagnosed, like what people can do to help resonated from when I was even gave birth and had, you know, Isabel Logan. Oh yeah. Because people will be like, Oh, well, what do you need? I want to help in whatever way possible. It's like, I don't even know my name today. Okay. Like I don't even like I had 15 minutes of sleep last night. So what I would love for you to do, but I don't know how to vocalize that right now is to literally like do my laundry. Like just (laughs) right. And and, and yes, sure. Make me a meal, but like just leave it on the doorstep and run away. Like I just want like some peace and quiet. You don't even know what you want at that point too. So I just felt like it was helpful to hear that 
you know, it also made me feel a little bit better about kind of how, you know, even though I felt like maybe I wasn't always doing the right thing when my sister-in-law was going through her treatment, at the end of the day, it was really just being there and keeping your word and doing the best you can and not asking anything of that person. That's because, you, that, like you said, that, that yeah. part right there. That part right mm-hmm. there, not asking of that person because that person is is already going through their own personal hell. And yeah. for you to, you know, <laughs> they need to be what they need to be for themselves so they can, you know, be the best they can be in that state, you know, and, and you putting un- undue pressures on them for something that's yeah. going to serve you or yeah. make you feel better. <laughs> And that's why he got rid of all the trash in his life. And he's like, no. <laughs> he took out the no. trash. Yep. And he's like, while I'm also writing a book and coming up with my own things that I'm going to give exactly. to the world, like, you takers, get out of there. I love it. Yeah. Well, we would love to have Terry back on the program anytime, like we told him. Oh, and hopefully sure. he will definitely come back and give us some more of his wisdom. He is, you know, garnered all these years of i mean i just can't believe he was a swat team hostage negotiator like, i know get on the right phone with these people he would get on the phone with these people and be like hey that beer story i mean i that know beer story. <laughs> <laughs> i was like wow he really just i don't know if maybe his wife wouldn't give him a beer or what was going on in his mind but man he was it was a more simple. I honestly, it was the guy who was trying to commit suicide just couldn't do it. I was like, this man was like, <laughs> God is like, no. It was, it's not your that time. You haven't learned your lesson. It's going to go around. Yeah, you learn nothing. <laughs> and if you learn nothing from this experience, then I don't even know what to do. But, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's just awesome. And I hope we do have him back because there are so many stories I'm sure that he's got. That I mean, he can- did say at the beginning of the interview that cancer has made him sort of relook at himself and his life and has made him a better person. And so, yeah. you know, he, I think that Terry constantly is finding the silver lining in his life and he encourages others to do so. And man, if he didn't do that today on this podcast, I don't know what's wrong with your ears. Clean them out, people. Cause he was yeah. he was Yeah, because you're wrong and he's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was preaching the truth. Well as always, it's so oh wait, I gotta ask the question of the day. Do you remember when you first logged onto the internet? And if so, what was the first website you went to? Okay. I absolutely do. Remember, and I, I, really? I feel bad that Terry literally had no recollection like, nope. whatsoever. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Don't even know what that is. No, I remember because for Christmas, I got a laptop. And at that point, I didn't understand the internet, like how it really worked. And so right. it had a CD that came with it. It was like, here's AOL. And I was right. like, oh, cool. So I just like popped that thing in and was like, click it on it, trying to get into it. And it wouldn't, nothing was happening because it wasn't connected to the internet. It was just, I thought the internet was on a CD. And so finally, my dad oh. figured out, well, he knew to plug it in to the dial up. And so then the CD worked. So the first thing I ever saw was the AOL that home screen that was like, yep. here's some news, here's some chats, here's some whatever. And of course, I was like, chats it is. You've got went, mail. You've got mail. <laughs> and of course, the that? whole dial-up oh. sound. Oh, my gosh. It was That dial-up so sound. Uh, yeah, yeah, how about you? <laughs> <laughs> dial-up sound. That's what I think about that. 
Yeah, I remember. I think it had to have been the AOL thing because that's what we had. It had to have been the AOL thing, too. I do remember the first time. I don't remember the first time I went on the Internet. I do remember the dial up. But I remember the first time I went into like a chat room with people Mm -hmm. from all over the world. And we just started talking. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I was like, I'm talking to someone on the other side of the world. And it was just so it was such a novel thing to be able to just like AOL Instant Messenger. I remember that was also a big thing in college when I when I went to Penn State. It was yeah, people were what's your aim? And you what was your aim name? It was awful. It was tell me, tell me, can't be worse than mine. No, it was musicals rock. Oh my god, I love that so much. I don't think I could love it more. (laughs) And that was my thing for a long time. Musicals rock at Hotmail. Remember Hotmail? Musicals rock at Yahoo. Yeah. Oh my god, you took it to other places. I love it. It is so permanent. Oh, mine is so much worse. So don't even worry. Mine was what was it? Laura, ninety-eight dead. Not even 98 degrees because that was too long. Laura, 98 deg because I was obsessed with 98 degrees. Oh, like deg, like degrees, like D-E-G. Like degrees, D-E-G. Oh, my absolute God. First of all, did you see them when they came to Charleston? Oh, I did. I even went and saw them at, at the state too. fair in yeah, Columbia. I stayed at their same hotel. I met <sighs> Justin and Jeff. Uh-oh. I got a Uh-oh. picture with Jeff. I, I always thought Jeff was Nick. the hottest one out of, out of all of them. Jeff oh, was always right? the – and Nick Lachey was – but, you know, actually, I had a friend who knew Nick Lachey, but he was like, it's Lachey. <laughs> oh, it is? Yes. Is it really? <laughs> well, Nick he should have gone with yeah. Lachey. He, that would have yeah. been – you know, let's just <laughs> He did. Go he, with I mean, it. he went with Lachey, but yeah. But yeah, Lachey. 98 Degrees was – oh, that wow. was such a good – I loved them too. I didn't know you had – Everybody you was so into in sync and Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees you know, was 98 my, Degrees was – yeah. They had the love balance. muscles. Yeah. Oh, and they oh, had you, muscles. You, that was yeah. – yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. I felt like it wasn't, I don't think I knew this at the time, but like, I think that was more of the draw of like, these are men. These are these not are just backstreet boys. These are men, you know, and in sync, you know. <laughs> yeah. Although I did love Bye Bye Bye. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Well, speaking of bye bye bye, we have to say bye bye bye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See what we did there. Well, Terry Tucker, sir, we can't appreciate. We can't say that we appreciate anymore because it was such a great, great episode this morning, and we can't wait to have him back on the program. And it's always oh, lovely totally. seeing you. Oh, you know, just always, always lovely. <laughs> and and I would like to leave this on the note of musicals rock, guys. So just get out there. <laughs> Dead to me. Or dead to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Love you. Mean it. Love you. Bye. Bye.